Good to be here with you all today. If you would please open up to Genesis 25 this morning. That's where we're going to pick up in our study through the book of Genesis today. That's page 19 on the Bible there in your row. Uh, for those of you who are new to Christ Community Church, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elders here, and if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, um, I will try to come and find you, or you can come find me after the service. would love to shake hands and, and get to know you. One of the things that, uh, that I love about having Seth as our pastor here is that he believes that you should, as a church body, that we should, as a church body, hear from other people throughout the course of the month. And so if you've been here for any time, you know that about once a month, once every six weeks or so, you'll hear from someone else who wants to open up the Bible and share what the Spirit has put upon their heart as they understand and, and exposit and teach and, and really get at the heart of the Scriptures. And it goes without saying here that, that if that's you this morning as well, if you desire to teach, if you desire to grow in that capacity, if you have a, a burden and a desire to open up the scriptures and, and unpack truth and help people understand Christ for who he is from the Bible, whether your platform is a, a pulpit or your dining room table or a, a table at a coffee house, or whether it's a classroom, whether you're a man or woman, a student, if that's you and you want to know what it looks like to open up this book and explain the glories and the mysteries of Christ, let me just say this morning, we would love to as a church family to encourage you in those skills, in those gifts. Being able to teach and explain things from the Bible is not the mark of, of Christian Maturity, it's not the pinnacle of being a, a Christian. Being up here makes me no more spiritual or anybody who's up here more spiritual. Teaching from the Bible is simply a sign that as the Lord has worked in your life, you so desire that others would experience the same growth. And so if that's you this morning, please let me or Brent or Seth or Jim Wheeler, your community group leader, know uh, so that we can be an encouragement to you in that. And thank you, Seth, for the privilege of sharing the pulpit here on Sunday mornings. Um, so growing up in my family, as we come to Genesis this morning, um, growing up in my family, I had an older brother and I had a younger brother. And outside of the occasional sibling uh, disagreement, we all had pretty good relationships with each other, and we still do to this day. But that's not always the case whenever you grow up with brothers or sisters, Right? Just listen to some of these stories that others have shared about the dynamics of what it looks like to have siblings at home. Here's one story from a little girl who's five. She says, when I was five, I got my boots stuck in deep mud and I couldn't move. After unsuccessfully attempting to pull me out, my sister walked home to get help. I waited in the rain for an hour and no one came. So I pulled my feet out of the boots, and I walked home barefoot. When I got home, I found my sister watching TV. She had apparently forgotten about me. Or this from a little boy. I had two brothers who were both 10 years older than me. For months, they taught me the alphabet. A, B, C, D, R, F, K. 
my kindergarten teacher had fits reprogramming the alphabet in my mind. I got back from vacation, and my room smelled a little weird. My sister had apparently put a month's worth of wet diapers under my bed to get back at me for something I can't even remember. How about this one? My little brother put peanut butter in my ears while I was asleep on a family fishing trip, and I couldn't get it out. Don't get any ideas here. I got him back by filling up a squirt gun full of water and cayenne pepper and spraying him in the face. One day, last one, my brother invited me, my older brother invited me to join him for a rock fight in the backyard. The only rule was that he got to throw first. The first rock that he hurled smacked me directly in the mouth and chipped my tooth. I'm now 35 and I still have to wear a fake tooth to this day. Siblings, right? They can be your best friends or they can be your most bitter enemies. And sometimes they can be both in the same day, right? As we come to this next part of Genesis, we are going to zoom in on Abraham's family and we're going to see the story surrounding Abraham's son, Isaac, and his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau are siblings who, from the very start, are pitted against each other. And what God writes out for us in the pages of our Bible, when it comes to Jacob and Esau, what God writes out for us are these very select key events in their relationship where we see that there is deceit and division and it creates difficulty in their lives. You see what I did there? That's a pastor tool. Put a lot of alliteration in there. They, they, there's this difficulty that's created in their life until their rivalry hits a point where there is an inescapable showdown. Now, through all of that, there's also another story that can't be escaped. And it's a thread that runs through their lives that shows that despite their sins, despite their trickery and lies, there is one who is faithful and true who will always work to bring about his plan and his promise, even through the most broken of people. So let's turn our attention now to the beginning of Genesis 25, and we'll begin to explore the lives of Isaac and Jacob and Esau together. Take a look at verse 7 with me. Now at this point, In the story of Abraham's family, Sarah has been dead for about 40 years. And so we see in verse 7, the the final chapter for, for Abraham. It says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite. If you zoom down to verse 11, you see this. It says, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And so now the the, the baton has been passed, the blessing has been passed, the character has been zeroed in on. We've moved from Abraham to Isaac. And so if you look down in verse 19 of chapter 25, we begin to see this new generation, this new generation who will carry forward the promise. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Verse 19, it says, Abraham fathered Isaac, 
And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. Now, right after this, we see something that we've seen before, right? Look at verse 21. What does it say? It says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was what? She was barren. She was barren. You've got the, the original receiver of the promise, Abraham. His wife is barren. He's told, I'll make of you a great nation. Your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. If you could count the stars in the heaven, so will your generations be. And he looks at that and says, but I don't have any kids. And so we see in Abraham's life that he hears that promise and he engineers his own solution, doesn't he? He comes up with his own plan and the Lord uses his mistakes and he uses his lack of trust to still bring about a promise. But what do we notice here? What do we notice here? In verse 21, we see that Isaac, because his wife was barren, prayed. See, along the way, Isaac had seen and experienced enough to know that God was faithful. He'd seen and experienced enough to know that God could accomplish things that he said that he would do that we can't wrap our minds around. God doesn't need us to know all the steps in order for him to do what he's declared will happen. God asks us to trust him by faith. And so, verse 21, the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, for those of you who don't know, my sweet wife over here is seven months pregnant with our fourth, and we've officially hit that stage of pregnancy where we'll be sitting on the couch at night, and I'll hear this little oof, or hello, from the other side of the couch, and she'll proceed to tell me which internal organ our son is kicking. And so I can appreciate the sentiment behind what we're going to read here in verse 22, where it says, The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? If you knew Hebrew, what she is literally saying is, I want to die. Right? This is before ice cream and heat packs and Netflix, right? There's no comfort sitting in a tent in the middle of the field. So I get that. I understand that. So God offers her some perspective on what is going on. Look at verse 23 with me. It says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Catch this. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, verse 24, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac 
loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now from the very start, as we look at the lives of these two men, we get a perspective about what is to unfold. God declares the younger, Jacob, would rule over the older, and that from them would come two nations. And so you have hairy, red Esau, You've got Jacob, the heel grabber. Literally, it means cheater. He's a cheater. Esau was a hunter. He was a man of the field. Esau, this is not hard to find in Magnolia, Texas. He was the guy with the jacked up F-250 with mud tires and camo print on the bottom of the doors and a Bass Pro Shop sticker in the back window. Jacob watched HGTV with his mom on the weekends and made charcuterie boards, right? That's what you've got. You got these two guys. Jacob was a quiet man, and Isaac loved Esau, while Rebekah took to Jacob. Why tell you all of these details? Because in this chapter, we are getting a glimpse into a family dynamic. You've got two sons who are totally different, who've been contending with one another since before they were born. And you've got mom and dad playing family favorites. And Jacob, before either he or his brother had done anything whatsoever, was already declared to be the son of the promise. The older, Esau, shall serve the younger. And so, with all of that in mind, we come to really the first key event in this relationship between Jacob and Esau, where we see this rivalry and this tension come out. So take a look at verse 29 of Genesis 25 with me, and let's take a look there. It says this, Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And he said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Basically, what you've got going on here is Esau coming in from the field, and he's saying, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to sit down right here, and whatever's in that pot, I need you to come and serve me. Sounds like brothers, right? I'm not getting up and doing a single thing. You're going to get up, and you're going to get that for me, and you're going to bring it over here, and you're going to thank me afterward, right? That's the dynamic that you see here. But Jacob responds in verse 31 by saying this, sell me your birthright now. Sell me your birthright now. Birthright in this day was the right that the firstborn son had to a double inheritance of everything that his father had. Gave him the right to be chief over the family, Gave him the right to inherit his father's blessing. Jacob is not a dumb man. Jacob is not a fool. Jacob knew the value and the worth of what it is that he was asking for. We can guess that he may have even known that the right to be chief over his family, the right to inherit the blessing of his father, had been predestined for him by God. What he's asking for is not a wrong thing to ask for. It's not wrong to want 
this birthright. It's not wrong, especially given what God has already declared for him to desire this thing. He is asking for and hoping for a spiritual blessing from his father, from God, the God of his fathers, and it is worth his affections. It's not wrong that he wants this. The issue is that he's getting it by manipulating his brother. But notice, it's not a hard sell, is it? Take a look at verse 32. What does Esau say? He says, I'm about to die of hunger, man. I don't care about the birthright. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now, verse 33. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Not a hard sell. Not a hard sell. Esau looks at all the value of what's to be gained in his birthright, and he says, I would rather have a cup of soup than any of that stuff. I don't care about it. Just give me the soup and let me go on my way. What should we take away from that? I think the first takeaway for us today as we examine their lives and we try to draw truth out of them is that we should not trade the joy of obedience for the gratification of immediate desires. Don't trade the joy of obedience for the gratification of immediate desires. This really goes both ways, doesn't it? Jacob wants the birthright. He sees an opportunity to get it, and he uses a pot of stew to make things work on his timetable. Esau, even with a plan, keep in mind, even with God's plan for Jacob, Esau still had a right to promises from his father. But he let his desire for a bite of food cause him to throw away the things that he was entitled to receive. This is a danger for all of us as well, is it not? This is a danger for all of us as well, is it not? Being tempted to give up something precious in order to satisfy a strong, sudden desire for something that we want. We've discussed this over the summer when we were going through James. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Listen to me, church. Listen. There will always be an appealing alternative available to you instead of obedience to Jesus. There will always be an appealing alternative available to you other than obeying Jesus. You don't have to work hard to find things which feel good and look good and provide temporary satisfaction, but do not lead you and I toward living the joy-filled, Christ-centered life that you and I have been called to live. It's easy for us to find comfort in relationships or food or drink or the pings and buzzes and alerts of things that come to us on our phone telling us that someone's thinking about you, someone wants you, someone needs you, someone values you. 
It's easy as people to substitute the pleasure and the joy of silence and avoidance so as not to walk in obedience if obedience would mean hard things. It is easy for us as people to cash in on the promises of God and say, I'll get to my relationship with Jesus once I'm established in my career. Once I've solved this parenting challenge. Once I've got enough money in the bank account so, me, so I don't have to grind anymore. It's, it'll be easy for me to follow Jesus when blank. But until then, this other thing is going to get my affection. Listen, church, our call as Christ followers is not to be people who live for immediate desire, but to long for what the Spirit longs for, which is our sanctification, our growth, our conformity to the character of Jesus, not to trade in the joy of obedience just to gratify our immediate desires. And so Jacob gains the birthright. He has all this stuff that he's entitled to now. He's managed to manipulate his brother into having a right to all of these things. But the fulfillment of those things is still yet in the future. Because none of these birthright promises come to reality until Isaac passes. And so, let's zoom ahead now in this story of these men to Genesis chapter 27. We're going to see really the the second kind of key event in the lives of Jacob and Esau, where this potential for this birthright that's been passed from one brother to the next has the potential to come true, and, and we'll see just how they feel about it in that moment. Take a look with me, starting in verse 1, chapter 27. It says, Now when Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. Verse 2, he said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. And from there he proceeds to tell Esau, I want you to go out and hunt. Make the food that I like to eat and then come back here so I can bless you. Now a couple things for us to note right off the bat. We know that Esau is the older son, right? We know that Esau is the older son. Isaac knows that Esau is the older son. Why point out in verse 1 that Isaac called Esau his older son to him? Because it draws our attention to something that we know and that Isaac knows is not right. Isaac, at this point, thinks he may die soon, and so he prepares to give a blessing to his son. This blessing is something that we we don't have a frame of reference for in our culture, but in that day, if you were a father and you were about to die, you would bring your sons to you and they would place their hand under your thigh and you would speak a blessing over them. And it was almost like an an oracle or a, a prophecy. And the things that you said to them in that blessing were legally binding. 
It is essentially, a, a, a parallel for us would be like a person's will. The things that you declare in that moment are what will come to pass. And so the son who receives this blessing is entitled then to what is spoken. Now we know that God has already declared Jacob to be the son of the promise, but remember, who does Isaac love? He loves Esau. He loved Esau's food. There's an issue of obedience here to what God has said, and it appears that Isaac has traded the joy of obedience to gratify his desire to play favorites and to feed his appetite, right? He could have just blessed his son. He could have said, Esau, come here. I don't know what's going to happen. Something doesn't feel right. I need you to come here because I want to bless you. But he caveats it, doesn't he? He says, I want to feed my appetite for food, so you go get me food, and then I will bless you. This is not how this scenario is supposed to play out. So fortunately or unfortunately, and we won't go into all detail here because there's just so much to to cover and so little time to do it, but, but fortunately or unfortunately, Rebecca is close by. She overhears this conversation and she concocts a plan. She calls Jacob, this is what we read in Genesis 27, she calls Jacob over and says, hey Jacob, here's what we're gonna do. I want you to go out in the field, I want you to get some of our family goats, I know how your dad likes to eat. You bring me those goats. I'm going to make him food the way that he likes it. And then you're going to walk into that tent and you're going to pretend to be Esau and you're going to get the blessing instead. Look at verse 11. Jacob, again, not a dumb man. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, verse 11, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Legitimate concern, right? How am I going to get away with this? But notice that. Jacob's concern here isn't, Mom, why would I deceive my father? Why would I knowingly do something to disobey and sin against the man whom God has put in my life to be the receiver of the promise, who's cared for me all of my days, why would I sin against my father? That's not his concern. Jacob's concern is, Mom, I don't want to get caught. I like your plan. I'm on board with what we're doing. How do I make sure that this doesn't backfire on me. Rebecca's not without an answer. She tells Jacob, hey, go get some goat skins. Put them on your hands. Put them on your neck. You're going to put on Esau's clothes. You're going to disguise yourself. So Jacob goes into where his father is. Food is prepared. Serves it to him. Isaac notices that the voice is the voice of Jacob. But he puts his hands on Jacob and he smells his clothes and he says, the feel, the smell is that of my son, Esau. You have to wonder how hairy this guy is, right? Had he never heard of manscaping? I don't get that. But Isaac is too poor of sight to tell the difference. 
And so he proceeds to eat, and he gives the blessing to Jacob instead. The blessing that says, you will be Lord over your brother. Those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. And all the goodness and the fatness of the land will be upon you. Jacob quite literally pulled the wool over his father's eyes. And so no sooner does Jacob leave with the blessing of his father than Esau returns. He prepares the food and he enters his father's tent and announces his arrival. And Genesis 27, verse 32, we read this. His father Isaac said to him, Esau comes into the tent, Who are you? Can you imagine the tone of that statement? You've spent in your, in your dim-sightedness perhaps hours awaiting the utterance of those words to bless the son that you loved. The gratitude, the excitement, the joy you must feel in your heart knowing that as a father you had a blessing to give and that you bestowed it upon the son that you loved. The voice was that of Jacob, but the feel was that of Esau. This man could hear. So, in walks Esau. Who? Who are you? Who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. There's no need to reach out and touch him. There's no need to feel his hairy neck, his hairy hands. No need to smell his cloak. Isaac trembled, verse 33, very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came? And I have blessed him. Yes, he shall be blessed. As you can imagine, Esau is incensed at his brother's actions here. Begins plotting to kill Jacob. Rebecca finds out once again, supersonic hearing. Any of y'all's moms have supersonic hearing in here? Sends Jacob away to her brother's house to find a wife. What do we learn from this story of trickery and deceit? I think we draw out the second principle I want for us to see today, and it's this. Hope in the faithfulness of God to accomplish what you cannot. What do I mean by that? This whole debacle with Jacob stealing this blessing came from a lack of trust that God would be able to accomplish what he said he'd be able to accomplish, right? It's the 11th hour. It seems that Jacob is going to get passed over. Rebecca and Jacob are looking at the situation and going, God, what are we going to do? This isn't how this is supposed to go. I know the ending to this story. It doesn't look like this. How are we going to get over this situation? I know what we'll do. Let's strong arm what we think is best rather than trusting God. We're smart enough to figure this out. I don't have time to wait to see what the Lord's going to do. This is urgent. Let's figure out what we're going to do and just go do it. It'll all work out in the end, right? Would God not have been able to ensure that Jacob could still receive the covenant promises even if his father had blessed Esau? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
Surely, Isaac's actions can't override what the God of the universe is able to do if he intends to do something. Surely, God's promises are not subject to the will of men, to the sinful actions, the disobedient actions, the faithless actions of people. Surely, God is bigger than that, is he not? I think it's common for us. I see myself. Can I just be honest with you? I see myself in Jacob. I always know the path to take. When problems hit, I know what to do. I'll figure out my own solution. Just ask my wife how much of a hard-headed, stubborn, fix-it-yourself kind of person I am. She's chuckling over there. You can't hear it because I'm talking too loud. (laughs) I see myself in Jacob. I see the American spirit in Jacob where, where crisis hits. We come to a crossroads. We come to a seemingly impossible situation in our marriage or with a challenging kid or a work problem or a health problem that creates a crisis for us. And in that moment, despite a long track record of knowing what God has done and can do, we revert to solving the problem ourselves. And we get to the Lord when it only appears to us that we've exhausted all of our resources. Rather than pray and wait and hope, we find ourselves believing that the best path forward is the one that we forge for ourselves. Even if we wouldn't say it, our lives and our actions demonstrate that seemingly hopeless situations demand our grit and our determination more than waiting upon the Lord. Now, Am I saying that we sit idly by in life and just do nothing at all when crises come? No, I don't think that's the right answer either. But we become prayerful people who hope in the ability of God in situations that seem impossible. We hope in the faithfulness of God toward us as his people when it seems like there's no other path forward. When another person's sin, as is the case here with Isaac, is making situations complicated, we ask the Lord to move in their heart rather than trying to muscle our way past them. Jacob didn't do that. And while the Lord certainly worked, in spite of Jacob, in spite of Jacob's actions, in spite of Jacob's deceit to bring about his purposes, if you read past Genesis 27, you will see that there is a trail of destroyed relationships and a string of consequences that will follow this man for the rest of his life. And so Jacob leaves his family. The end of Genesis 27, he leaves his family. He escapes Esau. He goes to find his wife. And on the way, the Lord meets him, tells him of his promise, says to him that he's being given the land and the offspring and the blessing and that he would be with him wherever he went. And yet Jacob says this. this is not going to be in your slides, by the way. This is Genesis 28, verse 20. Jacob says, If God will be with me, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house, just dump the... Requirements on, one after the other, in peace. Then, what? Then, the Lord shall be 
my God. So you've got now this, this divergent path. Faithful God, Jacob, I know you're on the run from your, brother, your brother who wants to murder you. Let me just remind you of something while you leave home. All the goodness that I have to give you is freely yours. Everything. Everything, despite your brokenness, despite your deceit, despite your sin, despite your faithlessness, everything that I have is yours. Jacob's response, cool, bro. When I get back here, if you've done all this other stuff for me, let's reevaluate that conversation. As long as God is willing to serve Jacob's needs, Jacob is willing to serve God. And so the next three chapters of Genesis we won't cover. They chronicle 20 years of life or so that Jacob lives with his uncle. He acquires wives and maidservants and children and livestock and possessions for himself. And if you're a person who likes to see people get a taste of their own medicine, we see Jacob get deceived and ridiculed and mocked and and taken advantage of. And he experiences in his life the pain of the things that he's brought upon other people. And then we come to Genesis 32. The final of the three real key events we see between Jacob and Esau. Time has come now, 20 years later, for Jacob to return home. But re-entering the land means that he has to now confront the things that he's done. And so we read this in Genesis 32. Starting in verse 3. It says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, living in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell you, my Lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Now put yourself in Jacob's shoes here for a minute. You took your brother's birthright, you cheated him out of his blessing, and you had to skip town so he didn't murder you. How would you feel if you sent a message hoping to find favor and instead find out that he's on his way to meet you with a small army? Jacob's response is what I think many of ours would be. Verse 9 is to pray. And Jacob said, verse 9, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Notice who's not in that list. O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. That he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. In other words, Jacob says, Hey God, you remember telling me all that really good stuff you were going to do for me? Because my brother's on his way. I'm a little worried that he wants his pound of flesh. 
Now's a really good time for you to come through on all that real nice stuff that you said you were going to do for me. Which brings us to our last point for today. Don't let your circumstances dictate when you become godly. Don't let your circumstances dictate when you become godly. I won't belabor this point. It ties closely to what we talked about earlier. But here's what I want to point out, and then we'll wrap things up. 20 years earlier, God had shown up to Jacob, and he'd confirmed the promises to him. 20 years. 20 years. And it wasn't until Jacob was in a position of deep need that he decided to lean upon God. What's sad for Jacob, what's sad for those of us who wait until moments like this, like what he's going through, to get into Scripture, to walk with the Lord, is not really that he waited or that we wait until our circumstances dictate it that we get godly. It often means that we've missed out on years Decades, in Jacob's case, of enjoying the richness of relationship with God. It's easy to get godly when crisis hits. But in the in-between, where is the richness of your life found? Where do you draw your strength and your hope? What is the thing that causes you to wake up in the morning and put your feet on the ground and say, today is a new day that I wasn't granted. How will I use today for myself, for the one who put the breath in my lungs and who opened my eyes to see the sunrise yet another day? Jacob had seen a vision back in Genesis 28, he'd seen a vision of angels coming back and forth between heaven and earth, and he'd seen the Lord standing above it all, and his reaction in that moment is to say, no, that's not really what I want right now. In churches all across America this morning, there are people who've seen a far greater vision than angels descending to and from the throne of glory. They've seen something on the pages of Scripture that is more glorious and magnificent than anything Jacob experienced. They have the ability to look on the pages of Scripture and see in the lives of people the story of the glory of God displayed on the cross. That God Himself stepped into human flesh and did what none of us could do. To take the penalty of our sin away and to offer us freedom and forgiveness And so many people, and this is me on so many weeks, and I hate that that's true, look at that and do what Jacob did and say, cool, I'll get to that later. Because right now, I've got this other thing going on. Maybe when it's more convenient or when a crisis hits, will I give this glorious God my affection and my attention? But not right now. What joy we miss out on, church. What richness we pass up. What hope we ignore to know and to walk with the Lord and enjoy the promises he gives us. If that's you this morning, hear this. The beauty of this story 
is that God was not done with Jacob. This crisis moment would turn the tide. We're going to see that when we come into the latter part of Genesis 32. We're going to see a shift in Jacob's life. Used and will use this broken man with a spotty track record to make for himself a nation who would be called the people of God. And as long as you and I are breathing, just as God was not done with Jacob, he's not done with us either. Amen? But here's the better news. You don't have to wait for a crisis moment. You don't have to wait for an army of men out to get their pound of flesh in your life to hit or for the circumstances in your life to change for you to approach the throne of Christ with confidence and to draw near to God and find that he draws near to you. It's Hebrews, right? Let us draw near with confidence. You draw near with confidence? But don't you know all the baggage I've got? Don't you know the sin I'm struggling with right now? Don't you see the hypocrisy in my life? Don't you see that I've known Christ for years, but it's been decades or years or months, whatever that is for you, since I really looked at my relationship with him and and lived out of a belief that it mattered? How could I approach him confidently? The Bible doesn't say that there's a caveat to that. Approach the throne confidently. You can freely come to Christ and find rest for your soul and hope for tomorrow, whether that's for the first time or whether it's humbly acknowledging that though you've seen Christ for who he is, you may have waited until the timing was more convenient to really press into that relationship. You know, I want to end by saying this. We started out talking about siblings, joking about how siblings treat each other. We've seen in Jacob and Esau's life and in their story really broken family relationships Broken sibling relationships. Hebrews 2 reminds us that we are brothers of Christ. He is the better brother who doesn't cheat us out of the blessing of our Father. He's the better brother who instead shares the blessing that he's been freely given with us as fellow heirs. And because of that, all the richness all the goodness, all the hope that our Father intends to give to him comes to us by faith. Take heart and find delight in that today as we come now to worship together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for not being done with us. Thank you for not being done with me. see in Jacob's story so many stories that that I know are true of myself, that I know are true of friends and people in the church this morning. They've seen the glory of God. They know of Him. But somehow never seem to really enjoy the fruit and the fullness of that relationship. Lord, my prayer for us as a church this morning for Christ Community Church Magnolia. So we wouldn't wait until crises come. Wouldn't wait until circumstances dictate it. Wouldn't wait until we find ourselves in a position of incredible need to find that our hope and our delight and our joy is in Christ.
but that we would live fully embracing that truth and enjoying the goodness that comes from the blessing of our Father. God, we want to worship you because of that this morning. We want to worship you as people who can confidently come before the throne of grace. We want to worship you out of hearts that have gratitude for all you've done for us. So we do that. In Jesus' name.